Hello, and welcome to ATS Rx Podcast, the podcast that takes complex issues involving medication use in the ICU and breaks it down into practical and usable information for the bedside. This podcast is presented to you by the American Thoracic Society Clinical Pharmacist Working Group. The working group was established in 2019, and right now it's co-chaired by Drs. Dapali Dixit and Mark Mousker. My name is Dr. Marilyn Bullock. I'm an Associate Clinical Professor of Pharmacy Practice and the Director of Strategic Operations at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy, and I will be moderating today's podcast. Our podcast is meant to discuss all things related to medication, pharmacy, and more from the pharmacist's perspective. Our podcast is for educational purposes only. Now, we're going to cover material that represents the approach, view, or opinion of our speaker that may be helpful to you and others, but they do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of ATS. In today's episode, we will look forward into the future at what some parts of sepsis management may be. We're joined by a pharmacist who is widely recognized and respected for his work and research involving sepsis and vasopressors. I'm very proud to welcome Dr. Seth Bauer. Seth is a clinical pharmacist in the Department of Pharmacy at Cleveland Clinic and is a clinical assistant professor of medicine in the Cleveland Clinic Lerner College of Medicine. After he finished his PharmD training at Drake University, Seth completed the postgraduate training at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He's considered an expert in the use of vasoactive agents for circulatory shock and has authored or co-authored more than 85 peer-reviewed manuscripts and book chapters. Dr. Bauer is a fellow of the American College of Critical Care Medicine and a member of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Research Committee. Welcome, Seth. That sounds like so much on your plate. I don't know when you sleep, but we're very happy you could be here with us today. Thanks so much for that kind introduction and for the opportunity to be with you today. I'm excited. Well, we're excited too. Let's get go ahead and get started. Seth, there's a lot out there about what sepsis is going to look like 50 years down the road, maybe even sooner than that. What do you think the future holds for individualizing sepsis management? And maybe just more specifically for individualizing fluid and vasopressors for the individual patient? Yeah, I think that this is a a fascinating question. And I think we would be foolhardy to try to predict the future with any certainty. But I think that in in the next five to 10 years, there's a, a lot of work going on that will probably impact us at the bedside within that time frame. And for my own future direction, I've thought about this a lot. And I think that there's probably four unique areas that probably will make it to the bedside in some capacity within the next decade or so. And I'll I'll talk about them individually and then we can maybe dive into them a little bit further. The first of those is the, when when I first think about um, the use of individualized parameters, I often think about pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics. And related to vasopressors themselves, there are some data that have described different genetic phenotypes 
that describe different responses to different vasopressors. So these would be such as for vasopressin, there is a particular genotype of the metabolism mechanism, the vasopressinase LNPEP, where a particular genotype of that will have increased vasopressin clearance and higher mortality. There's also work on the RAS system in heart failure that could be cross-applied to the use of angiotensin II in shock. But often this genotype information takes a lot of time to get back. And so considering the relatively emergent nature of vasopressors, I think the technology is really going to have to progress before that pharmacogenetic genomic data is incorporated into our bedside practice. The second area I think about is the use of biomarkers for initiation or tailoring of vasoactive therapy. And I know as part of this series, you're having other outstanding experts that likely talked about this, Dr. Sasha and Birashevsky, where they probably talked about lactate and renin and other biomarkers in reference to angiotensin II and vasopressin. But I will comment that there are several studies that have found that patients with higher lactate concentrations, when these therapies are initiated, have lower odds of response. So the use of those biomarkers can be part of our future bedside practice, both to assess tissue hypoperfusion at baseline or also to guide therapy. The third idea I think about is this concept of hemodynamic phenotyping. This would be the use of echocardiography and other bedside assessments like diastolic blood pressure to determine what therapy should be used next for a particular patient. And I will note that one approach to this type of algorithm is currently being tested in the ongoing Andromeda Shock 2 study. And the fourth one that I've spent a lot of time personally thinking about is individualized predictive algorithms and use of artificial intelligence and machine learning or so-called AI and ML. These algorithms can can be incorporated into the electronic health record and use available clinical data to predict lots of different outcomes. It could be everything from predicting if a patient will fail norepinephrine monotherapy or even predicting which vasopressor is best for an individual patient. And I think that that area holds a lot of promise, particularly because these algorithms can be adapted to each individual site so each site can say this prediction works better for us or not, or we don't measure this particular biomarker, so we're not gonna include it in the algorithm. Let's see what it looks like if we do or don't include that. And it's also deployable across entire EHR platforms. And so it, it can be helpful to a lot of different folks that may or may not have access to some of these other, uh, other possibilities. The, those are the four that I've thought a lot about, but I'm sure that I'm missing some that will probably make it into our practice within the next decade. And if you think about it, there's probably so much that's still in research and development that hasn't even been leaked out yet. It may catch us Absolutely. a surprise. Now, you know, when I hear all of this, Seth, I'm like, I think to myself, this is fantastic. This would make 
our lives as pharmacists so much easier because we really could practice that precision medicine. I think we were all promised we would be doing by now in pharmacy school. But, you know, I also have to think about the practical nature of it. You know, I'm at a community teaching center in your Cleveland Connect. How many beds do y'all have? Our medical ICU has 64 beds and we're roughly 250 total ICU beds at our main campus alone. And that's a lot of beds. Our our hospital, even though we're the largest in Western Alabama, we have on a good day, maybe a census of 400, 500 people. Um, I think we can we can care for more than that. But the access to some of these advanced technologies uh, obviously is going to reach facilities like yours much faster than it's going to reach hospitals where I like where I practice. Um, I know large academic medical centers can utilize some of these concepts that's coming out and ongoing research, for example, you know, they may get to see it and use it early because they're part of that research process. But for the average hospital across the United States, I think it probably looks a little bit more like mine. Are there any pieces of these options that you just talked about that, you know, we can use at the bedside now, or that's going to be maybe a little bit more practical for someone like me to use in my ICU patients? Yeah, I think that there, there are definitely pieces that, that can be used. And transparently, th- this is what we're doing at Cleveland Clinic is just taking the pieces and parts. The, the first that I think is most tangible is this hemodynamic phenotyping idea. So a- as you and the listeners know, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines now recommend assessment of fluid responsiveness prior to administering fluids. And ESICM consensus statement recommends echocardiography for patients that aren't responding to initial therapy. So information from each of those pieces can be quite useful at the bedside, whether they are used in conjunction with a particular algorithm or just to gain more information that would help us make decisions at the bedside. I know, for example, we do a fair amount of echocardiography here in patients failing first-line norepinephrine. And our, our standard adjunctive vasoactive medication is vasopressin, and I think that's probably similar to other sites. But if we have an echo that suggests that a patient on norepinephrine has impaired LV systolic function, it could make sense to pick an alternative adjunctive vasopressor like epinephrine based on the drug's pharmacology as opposed to always using vasopressin second line. So I think that that piece could be something that can be incorporated now to individualize therapy for patients. The other piece that we're using a little bit more now, but not as much as we could, is using parts of those individualized prediction algorithms that I mentioned. So for example, it it may make sense to evaluate if a patient has an elevated lactate concentration to decide which vasoactive to use. And our work and others have found that there are lots of different parameters or biomarkers even that can be used to predict response to vasoactives. Everything from arterial pH to lactate, as I mentioned, to even creatinine clearance have been shown to have an association association with vasoactive response and individuals can use those parameters as part of their decision-making. 
I know at our site, it's often an if then, meaning if a patient reaches a certain threshold of norepinephrine dosage, then we add vasopressin. But maybe that decision-making can be a little bit more nuanced where patients with different dosing thresholds and other parameters like, let's say, a lactate concentration of X, then we think differently about when we add adjunctive vasoactives. So I, I, I think that some of that thinking can make it into the bedside and doesn't need to wait for all of these huge advancements in the field. Yeah, those do sound like um, several good, easy to roll out options. And you mentioned algorithms and you've also talked about artificial intelligence several times. You know, when I read opinion and white papers about the future of medicine, specifically in critical care, these are the things that are highly anticipated. Um, they're integral parts of the futuristic precision care that's discussed. You know, one anticipated role in these algorithms is not only for us to identify patients who would best respond to these therapeutics, but to be actually integrated into the equipment, such as infusion pumps that would manage minute-to-minute titrations of medications based on real-time data, which just sounds fascinating to me. How close are we to seeing this type of technology available to utilize in our sepsis patients? I agree with you, Marilyn, that this is so cool. Like the ability to do this would be so awesome. And these so-called closed-loop systems are extremely fascinating. And there's been a a few studies published on this, but I think that they're particularly tricky. And and I don't think of myself as a data scientist or an expert in machine learning or artificial intelligence, but but this is a particularly tricky problem because not only does it have to do with accurate estimation of a patient's blood pressure, for example, but also it's more of a forecasting problem where you have to predict the future and then adapt that prediction based on a patient's response and the amount of drug delivered. And I think that that is what makes this particularly challenging. I do know that a group at University of Utah has developed an algorithm that does a pretty good job of these closed loop systems and they validated it on patients with sepsis. Small population, I think it was, less than 15 patients, but it at least seemed promising that it could make it into the future. The challenge though, is that often these systems operate in, at least as of now, they've been studied in what I would call a relatively closed box. The patient themselves is a dynamic system. And so predicting a patient's response alone is challenging, but outside of that box, a lot of other things are going on at the same time. Take, for example, a patient that's being administered fluid bolus. The prediction algorithm needs to take that into account or something as simple as changing ventilator settings or turning the patient. All of those things have to be accounted for and the algorithms need to be advanced to be able to do that and to find a way to incorporate that information into their prediction and forecasting ability. But if this makes it, it would be so cool. Not just cool, but I think really helpful to patients. I think that one of the huge advantages here, and these aren't my ideas, others have talked about these, is it has the potential to reduce human error. So as of right now, we know oftentimes patients have 
below goal blood pressures for extended periods of time because folks are doing other things and they underestimate how much norepinephrine example uh, a patient will need or even overestimate and the patient's blood pressure shoots too high and then you have these oscillations between too high and too low. So these algorithms could really help keep a patient in a so-called sweet spot. I think probably more important or more exciting to me is it takes the thinking out of that crucial part of a patient's care to free up thinking and ability to do other crucial things that an algorithm can't do. I think that we've all been part of the care of a patient that is very unstable and our colleagues are all working to achieve adequate blood pressure, but the patient misses receiving timely antibiotics because everybody is so focused on the critical piece of blood pressure. So if these algorithms and these closed loop systems can be incorporated into technology, it could actually free up folks to actually focus on other crucial aspects of the care of a patient. And, and if it makes it, it'll be, I think, very impactful for patient outcomes. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it would be a game changer. And I personally think it could happen. I mean, if you really think about it, the ventilator itself is not that old. So this might be something that maybe we'll see before we retire and we can talk about this will be our back when story. Um, about yeah. how we used to have to hand titrate. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. Marilyn, you and I have been in practice long enough. We remember a lot of those old stories, you That's know, about admixing our own vasopressors and doing all of these things that we we tell our current trainees and junior colleagues now that they look at look at us like we have two heads. So that's exactly I, right. I can imagine this will be one of those on the tail ends of our careers where they'll be like, wait a minute, you actually push buttons on the pump to change doses of drugs? What are you thinking? Exactly. You know, one of the things I think that has changed the most since I've been in practice is how many biomarkers we have. You know, it just seems when I was in school and in training, we didn't have that much to go by. Now they seem to be going from conceptualism to application practice at a rate that's much faster than ever before. And I know you've talked on biomarkers just a little bit today, but what are some of the biomarkers that are still in the research phase that you see really becoming part of routine clinical practice in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I think that I'm probably going to say something similar to what some others on this podcast series have said, but I, I think Renin is probably the wave of the future. And I think about Renin in a couple of different concepts. One is that it has a stronger association with outcomes than lactate. I think lactate as a biomarker of hypoperfusion is probably reasonable. As an aside, I think it gets a little bit of a bad rap because we know that lactate isn't perfect, but it's not unreasonable. But renin seems to be better than lactate for assessing hypoperfusion, and it can be a biomarker to decide this patient actually needs increased intensity of therapy. So whether that be initiation of vasopressors or even adjunctive vasopressor uh, initiation. The other interesting thing about renin, of course, is that as part of the RAS, it is intricately tied to angiotensin II. So low 
renin concentrations could actually imply a high angiotensin II concentration. And that information could be useful to decide this patient is a better candidate for, say, angiotensin II exogenously or other vasoactives. So I think that renin will probably make it to the bedside. But I think that there's a, currently a lot of logistical limitations. In many hospitals, it's still a so-called send-out test, meaning that we send it to another site and get the information back in days. And of course, that's not useful to us at the bedside. I mean, heck, even I at Cleveland Clinic can't get a renin concentration back in less than two days. So the demand from our critical care clinician community probably needs to increase in order to move this technology forward to have it ready at the bedside. And, and I do know that a lot of folks are working on point of care renin testing. And if that makes it to, to practice, then it, it definitely could be useful at the bedside. I do think though that there are some other pieces that are a little bit further off. The, there, is, there are advancements in echocardiography and it's not exactly a biomarker, but folks are looking at more advanced markers like ventricular arterial coupling, where they're looking at arterial elastins and end systolic elastins of the LV. And, and those parameters together can probably be useful at the bedside and, and make it soon. But I think some of these other biomarkers we're hearing about like real-time GFR and others are probably a little ways off to be able to help us decide about individual patient decision-making. And, and if I were a betting person, I, I would say Renin is probably the one that will be most useful in the relatively near future. And that's so interesting to know. I, I need to start educating my team now on that because as you said, some of the smaller hospitals um, takes a little bit more time for things like that to catch up. Now, we've had a great conversation, Seth. It has been wonderful. Um, as we wrap up, I've got one last question for you. I know many of us are looking forward to utilizing these emerging considerations, um, but one concern that's been raised deals with whether or not we'll be able to use these novel approaches equitably. I think most of us would probably agree that if and when these technologies and biomarkers come into fruition, they really do have a strong potential to reorient our approach to sepsis care. Um, but small institutions, particularly those in rural areas and community hospitals, even ones much smaller than where I practice, they don't always have access to the same resources as larger, well-resourced academic medical centers do. What's your opinion on how all of these advancements can be leveraged to best alleviate disparities rather than exacerbating them? Yeah, equitable care is a huge challenge for us in, in healthcare right now. And I, I think it's a really difficult problem that will need innovative solutions to, to overcome. And sepsis care is, is no exception to, to those challenges. I think the biomarkers is one that will likely parallel the current disparities to be transparent. I think a lot of folks will continue to look at other sites with jealousy to say, wow, they can do it, why can't I? And, and even myself at a large center like Cleveland Clinic, I still look in jealousy at, at other sites and say, 
wow, it's amazing that they can take, for example, renin. They can get a renin concentration back in hours as opposed to days. So I think that the biomarkers will, will probably be a bit of a challenge and won't overcome these disparities. But that's actually why I'm so interested in the predictive algorithm piece, not because scientists will be available at every site in, say, community hospitals to develop these algorithms, but more so because the algorithms can actually be embedded in the electronic health record. And we know that there are only a handful of EHR vendors throughout the entire United States. So if these algorithms become impactful for patient care, they can actually be part of the standard deployment of all EHR, of an entire EHR platform. And here at Cleveland Clinic, we use Epic, and I know many sites use Epic. And there are many examples of the Epic platform taking best practices and employ, er, and incorporating them into their standard deployment and then pushing it out to all sites. And so if that is feasible with these algorithms, it actually has the potential to flatten disparities where a patient that goes to a hospital that has an EPIC deployment may have same access to this information, their providers at least, regardless of where they are, whether it be a small community hospital or a large quaternary center. So I think that the technology piece with algorithms in AI and ML is one fascinating potential opportunity to provide equitable care. That would be such an improvement for a lot of these smaller hospitals and rural areas. I really do hope these things come to pass. They sound like they would benefit a lot of patients in these smaller and rural areas. And Seth, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been such, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And for the listener, thank you for joining us in one of our inaugural ATS RX podcast episodes. We'll hope you will join us for future episodes as we talk about how to use medicines and critical care in other areas of medicine. Have a great day.